Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In the latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event from Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival 2019 for your listening pleasure. Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. Hello everybody, my name's Elaine Bedell and I'm the Chief Executive of Southbank Centre and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this very special event celebrating Phoebe Wallerbridge and Fleabag, the scriptures. On this stage exactly four weeks ago today, we had Hillary Clinton with her daughter Chelsea and they were talking about their latest book, which is called The Book of Gutsy Women. And I don't think we could find a more gutsy woman than Phoebe Waller-Bridge to follow up that event. This is the latest in a series of events as part of Southbank Centre's London Literary Programme, which celebrates the work of authors, and particularly women authors, But tonight we have Fleabag, The Scriptures, the aptly titled book, given that it's the celebration of a relationship with a priest. And I think we can thank Phoebe for giving us the phrase, the hot priest. (laughs) Um, This is a book which has the collection of the television scripts for Fleabag, a television series which hit our screens in 2016 and has been a worldwide phenomenon. This book also contains Phoebe's commentary on the making of the television series. And the big pink strap on the book says, this is a love story. And it's a love story on several levels because it's also a celebration, and in this case, a rather poignant, bittersweet celebration of female friendship and of the relationship between sisters. And Phoebe writes incredibly well about women and about the relationships between women, good and bad, as in the case of Killing Eve. And so it's appropriate that she's in conversation this evening with Deborah Francis White, who is the comedian and author of The Guilty Feminist, a podcast which has been downloaded 50 million times since in the last three years and which is currently on a world tour. Please welcome to the stage... Deborah Francis White and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So, I want to ask you some things. Firstly, when Fleabag season two ended, there was a group of us who'd got together for a viewing party. And uh, so there's like six or eight of us sitting there. And when it ended, nobody said anything for ages, which is really unusual in my flat. We just sat and stared, and we were all quite weepy. Now, before we came out, the hot priest was mentioned, and that last scene is with the hot priest, who you claim you never called the hot priest. No, he's, he's very much priest in the script. Uh, Twitter created hot priest, I believe, <laughs> and uh, you guys did. The point of the last scene was not how hot he was. I mean, that was always a little bit of the point of every scene he was in, but it wasn't the, the point of everything point. Andrew's in, I think, isn't <laughs> it? But the last scene in which you declare your love for him and before he can answer, you just say, no, let's just sit, I just want that to sit there. I just want to put it out there. 
And then eventually, we're all so desperately hoping that he reaches out for her, of course, because we're romantics. And the line that he says, which I think is one of the greatest lines in television history, is... It'll pass. It'll pass. Yeah. Oh. I remember that actually came to me as just, just as, a, as two lines out of nowhere. I was in my bedroom and I was writing something else and it came to me as a, a separate thing. And I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> and, uh, and then I kind of put it away and I just thought it was such a heartbreaking little conversation and then I remember bringing it back when I was talking to the um, producers on the show and we were talking about the ending and I said I have this idea and I've got these couple of lines that I really like I think they should maybe say something like I love you it'll pass and they just went <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh god you forget sometimes that these little notes that you just put down actually you have to so they weren't they, that didn't come to you for Hot Priest. That just came to you as something that could be said in response to I love you. Yes. <laughs> Bit and, sad, isn't it? And, but I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was very much in the world of, of Priest and Fleabag. I was writing Fleabag at the time. Um, but usually when I'm writing one scene, there's always another scene going on in my head. I'm a sort of naturally always rebelling against myself when I'm writing. So I'm writing one thing and the other part of the brain's going, but we want to write this thing. Mm. So it's quite sort of stressful. <laughs> with that one, I was writing, uh, I think a scene between sisters or something, and then I love you, it'll pass came in. And I was like, I know, wait, I'm just gonna write this. <laughs> it really comes through in the show that he, he really believes, uh, and he says that the doubt is part of it. Um, it's, it's really, really well drawn. And I think the, the, the cleverness of it for the show was in part that uh, Hitchcock said that there's no suspense like delayed coition. That there's, if you're waiting for someone to kill somebody in a Hitchcock film, that's never going to be as exciting as waiting for two people to have sex as that sexual tension mounts. And that's exactly what, what this provided in season two, was this, he can't, but he can't, but he can't, but he can't. And of course, by the time you got there, we wanted it so much. We were so horny for it, really. And <laughs> do you know, funny enough though, Phoebe, I've never told you this, but I've never been sexier than one time when I married two friends, um, not in a thruple way, I was the celebrant. And I wore, um, I happened to have in my wardrobe a sort of, like it was like a long black jacket that had a sort of like a dog collar style little collar. Yeah. And, and I wore a sort of skirt underneath it and stuff like that, you know, a little bit of you know, color in the shoes. Uh, it was a twist, but I did look a, quite vicary. And men could not stop. Like at the dancing part, they were, and I think it's something about the sacred and profane together. They were kind of just grabbing me. It was before me too. <laughs> so, uh, so I really felt that when I was watching it. I was thinking there is really something very, very sexy about being off the table. Yes, absolutely. And it was, and again, it's one of the reasons I was hesitant about the idea of the priest in the first place because I knew I wanted the second season to be about um, hope when the last one was about cynicism. And I also knew I wanted it to be, if the first season was all about the kind of casual sex... I wanted the second season to be about the power of a single kiss mm. and it to be all the opposites of the, of the, of the first season. And, and having a priest, I thought, was just so obvious. It was like, yeah, Fleabag fucks a priest. It's like, 
Um, but then when I, I saw any of us saw it coming at all, <laughs> I think you were the only one. Everyone's going to expect this. <laughs> but I thought, um, but once, and so I was very hesitant. But I knew I wanted it to be about religion for some reason. I'd been writing notes for a whole year, kind of flea bag jokes and things. And when I went back to read over it, there was just loads of comments on religion and jokes about religion, and it all started because I was in a cafe and I saw, heard this conversation between these two girls, and they were in these like tiny little skirts, and they were like look gorgeous, and they were sort of like 19, and they were like really kind of, mm -mm. and one of them was going, um, I just love the uh, the New Testament, I just love the New Testament, <laughs> it just really kind of, I don't know, I just think it's like it's got so much more depth, you know, the other, one. and um, and they <laughs> were just, I was like, that is. Brilliant. Yes. Because it's just it's so incongruous. But also there's something glorious about it that, that they're talking about. And so that's kind of where it started. And then I was like, okay, I've got... And I knew I wanted to have a scene of Fleabag in a church. I had these images. And this, this final piece in the puzzle, it was just begging to create. And I knew I wanted her to fall for somebody. And I knew I wanted someone to see the camera and all this kind of stuff. So the story was just begging for this priest. It was just like, mm. just write me. And I was like, mm. you're too obvious. Um, and then when I thought about Andrew in the role, then I was like, okay. We're doing this. This guy will fly because oh. it was important that he didn't, that the first time we met him, he wasn't in his priestly garb, that he was, we met him as a man first. And he says, I'm a priest. And that's the power of it as well. Mm. And she's like, yeah, whatever. No one's a priest at dinner in a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and actually his calm and his, uh, yeah, his, kind of, his, his sense of um, centeredness in himself is what really jars with her. Mm. And that amazing moment outside where he goes out to join her for a fag and she walks away and he says, well, fuck you then. And she turns back and you just see that's the moment she's in. Uh, oh, it's an exciting moment. And actually, that moment, you don't see... Because in my head, Fleabag's telling the story. So she's, she's in every scene every, before... She's the first person you see in every scene. You never see characters in a room without Fleabag in it. Oh. Um, and that's the first time when she exits that you're with a character alone without Fleabag um, for the first time ever. He I gets... I first met Phoebe in 2011, this day, 2011. And uh, in 2012, I was doing a storytelling festival. And I, had an, I just thought it would be fun to get all these different creative, fabulous people that I know and ask them to come along and tell a story, write something specific for this event. And much like you overheard these young women saying, oh, I love the New Testament, I overheard someone on the tube say, oh, she was chancing her arm. And I thought, well, that's a good turn of phrase. What if I commission a load of people? I mean, I say commission very grandly. Uh, 50 quid, come along and do it in a basement, the basement of the Leicester Square Theatre, 70 seats. Uh, but I, I rang a few writers and said, would you come and do sort of, you know, like a 10-minute monologue uh, for, on the theme of Chancing Aram? And I rang Phoebe, and we're, we're so unreliable narrators about what happened. What do you think happened, Phoebe? I phoned you and said, will you come and do a story called Chancing Your Arm? I remember going, uh, all, all I remember was going, no, I'm that, and that really scares me because I don't do stand-up. And you said it was all comedians. And then you said that I could sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, keep talking. <laughs> um, and, and then I remember saying, oh, no, no, it's really, it's, it's sort of too scary. And then we had the conversation about, but well, I have to do it because it's scary. That, that, so I have, a, I have a very similar version of this story. 
but uh, Phoebe, in my version of the story, uh, says, oh, I'm not sure. I think you weren't performing your own writing yet. And I didn't know you were writing, but I just knew you were a writer. But you were writing, and you were sending it off to people. But at Dry Write, your production company, you were producing all this amazing writing, and you weren't yet producing your own writing. Um, and you came onto the stage. I remember we did get a stool. Um, that same high stool, really, that you see in the West End show, we did get that stool especially for you because everyone else stood up. And Phoebe said, I'm not doing stand-up. And so it's technically not stand-up if you're sitting down. And I do remember, I remember you were in a red, I've got a picture of you in a red top with a white Peter Pan collar, which was very demure. And then you kind of leant forward on the stool and started talking about this slutty little pizza that you'd eaten and said she, she wanted to be in me so bad. And, oh... And it was so wonderful watching you objectify food the way men sometimes objectify us and being so happy about it. Um, and it, we were so thrilled. And I still don't know to this day why you went on last because you headlined the gig, even though you were the one that said you were outside your comfort zone, but you did. And you just smashed it. Like everyone just went, this has to be a full length show. And before we knew it, like most people would say, oh yeah, I'll do a full length show in Edinburgh and not do it, but you actually did. And before we knew it, you were in Edinburgh and you were being reviewed by broadsheets. And next thing we knew, there was a television show. Do you remember anything else about right how you wrote that first 10 minutes? Yeah, I remember realizing because I had a theater company and we were asking new writers to write short plays for us that were about 10 minutes long on a monthly basis. I sort of thought maybe I should put my, I mean, not my money where my mouth was, um, but I suppose... My, yeah, there was no money then. There was no Neither money in it money. then, no. no. Um, but I just thought I should have a go. And I've always, I just had this kind of annoying feeling that I wanted to. And I had done a few under a pseudonym for that company. Uh, so I wrote this thing and, and I was, uh, I felt nervous about doing it. But I showed my best friend, Vicky Jones, who ended up directing the stage play. He was a theatre director at the time and is now a writer as well. And... I showed her the first sort of few lines and she was like, this is great. And we were rehearsing another play at the time and I said, I'm, I'm writing this thing and I'm going to do it at Deborah's thing. And she was like, we don't have time for you to be frivolous. We're rehearsing <laughs> other things. <laughs> and um, I was like, I said yes. And she's giving me 50 quid. <laughs> and, um, and It's a lot of money back then for but us. But then I decided to write the whole thing, the whole little 10 minutes, just to make Vicky laugh. And that has been such a useful trick as for me as a writer. I was like, if I make Vicky laugh, I'm going to invite Vicky, I'm going to make her laugh, and Slutty Pizzas will make her laugh, and Wanking Over Obama and Zac Efron will make her laugh. and Because you know, I knew it was the kind of things that we normally laugh about together anyway. <laughs> and I wanted it to have a kind of like darker ending, and I thought of the same thing. It was like, I just want to make Vicky cry at the end as well. And the end of the, the 10 minutes, <laughs> the end of the 10 minutes is just her ending up on the uh, on the doorstep of her dad's house, listing all the things that she is scared that she might be. And Vicky laughed and Vicky cried. And so it was just a, it was a great uh, achievement from that point of view. And I was happy with that. And then this absolutely hammered girl came up to me at the end. And this changed my life. And we were there with my producer, Francesca Moody, and Vicky. And she came up and she was like, that was so fucking funny. You've got to take that to Edinburgh. You've got to take it to Edinburgh. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. She was like, you've got to. And, um, 
And I was like, okay. And then uh, Francesca and Vicky then said, actually, that's not a bad idea. We should do that. And then the next day, Francesca, who takes things up to Edinburgh every year, she contacted the, the underbelly and sent off that 10-minute thing. And they wrote back saying, we'll give you a slot. So really, it's, you know, it's this, this amazing gang of uh, collaborators and friends that I have, you know, really pushing me. And so she just called me and said, we're doing what the drunk girl prophesied we should do. <laughs> do you know who and, the drunk girl um, was to this day? I do, yeah. Oh, I do. Oh every God, time I see her, I told her, every time I see her, she forgets every time I see her. I'm like, you are the reason that everything happened for me. It wasn't like, me, was it? No, it wasn't me. Oh, thank no, God. Wasn't you. You're um, another reason that everything happened for me. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but that, so, and then it went, and then having a deadline and having that, that space booked, and we were just this small group of, you know, wannabe theatre makers, and then we just thought, damn it, let's just take a play up. And thank God you did. Um, something that really strikes me about Fleabag is that it, it was written in 2012, 20, for the 2012-2013, 20, around that era, and that was a time when the movement of feminism started moving again, I think. Uh, it was the time of Chimamanda, We Should All Be Feminists, Malala, Cat uh, Moran came out with How To Be A Woman, Bridget Christie did a bit for her, and it was just a time when it felt like feminism was coming back into the mainstream. And of course, they've always been hardworking feminists throughout the decades, but it felt like it was coming back into conversations in, between women in coffee shops and, and you know, at lunch suddenly we were talking about feminism rather than just talking about our own careers. And I feel like Fleabag has a real place there, but it's like she's this iconoclastic countercultural feminist. And I, I couldn't work out what it was, and I had to write the forward for the play, and I suddenly realized what it was, that I feel like she is the human being deep down inside the woman when a woman gets to put down like, the luggage of gendered expectations. Because all we can do as women is live up to gendered expectations or defy them, and both of those are exhausting. Every day having to get up and look like a woman and, and act like a woman and be ladylike. Or to go, I'm not that, I'm not that. Look at me not being that. I'm the other thing. I'm another thing. And it's like Fleabag just almost doesn't see it. She just knocks it all off the table. And it's, she's just the human being at the, like the center of the volcano that is libidinous and wants attention and craves connection and is hungry, all the time hungry. And she's, she's crying out for the things that the human soul wants rather than almost laboring herself with things that women are meant to want. Did you feel that when you were writing it? Or can you speak to the humanity inside Fleabag? Thanks. <laughs> that was major. <laughs> That's a really good um, piece of work. I wasn't really thinking about her as a... Of course, I was thinking about her as a woman in certain ways, but really, when I was writing her, I was just writing someone I wanted to play. Um, a character I wanted to play was the first impetus. And then when I realised how fun it was to say the things that I, that I say personally with my friends. Um, and we don't sit around talking about the fact that we're women all the time. That'd be so creepy. <laughs> We'd immediately assume that someone in that group wasn't one. They'd be like, 
yeah, we're all. Um, but I think, and that was how I was feeling when I was writing it. You know, after there were certain moments where I wanted to hit it, like when they go to the um, the feminist lecture and they're suddenly made aware that they're women because it's and, and whether or not they're good feminists or bad feminists. But the rest of the time, I just felt like her lipstick, her hair, and her coat were the one consistent things, the three consistent things that reminded uh, the world that she was in control and that she was feminine. And outside of that, the rest of it was just this person, this like character, obviously. For me, the role of the camera was also about that, that feeling of always being witnessed, that pressure of being witnessed. And when you've got your lipstick on and your hair and everything's ready, and then there's this thing, whether it's society or whether it's God or whoever it is, because that's how I imagined it sort of, there's an equivalent for the priest, he has the same feeling, that that pressure is what's driving her to perform. I, mean, I don't want to speak for all you guys. <laughs> I feel like so much of everyday life is about a really subtle performance that we've all managed to perfect. And sometimes when that mask slips, and like with Fleabag, sometimes she wanted the camera not to be there and it doesn't move. And that's when everything feels panicky and when you feel like you're losing control. And that's when I felt like they were her human moments because the rest of it was just, you know, everyday bullshit that we do all the time. And, and that was what was exciting to me is what happens when you put that much pressure on a person all day, every day. And they have their secrets and their traumas, like everybody does. And if you've got that relentless thing on you all day, those things will eventually reveal themselves. Mm. That's in the end why she sort of had to say goodbye, because she'd revealed her full self and was like, I got nothing else. Mm. I think what happened in that year, particularly in Edinburgh, is that feminism got really funny again. Mm. And it has, it has cycles of it. But I remember that year at Edinburgh, there were so many funny shows where women had just gone, oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and everyone was like, yay! Like, Audiences were just so relieved. It's helpful if feminism in a, is entertaining. There's, a, there's an amazing I'm a feminist but that I just saw in uh, season two where it's, I mean, it's not, it's not phrased as an I'm a feminist but, but I thought it was a brilliant one, where she goes to the Quaker meeting with the hot priest and then every, some man's standing up talking about something. You're only meant to stand up and speak if you're compelled and she thinks she's not going to and then she finds herself being basically pushed up and she's like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then she says, sometimes, at this Quaker meeting, she says, sometimes I wonder if I'd be such a feminist if I had bigger tits. <laughs> but I think that... <laughs> but I think that it's a given that she's a feminist. I hope that that's what comes through, is that she's constantly grappling with the fact that it's a given that she's a feminist, and then sometimes her brain challenges that for her, and that's her biggest fear, is mm. that she would be betraying feminism for men and women everywhere. She'd be like, just by having that thought that she just thought she had a better rack. <laughs> and, you know, oh, you, can be, you, can, you can have all that at the same time. You can't have it all at the same time, obviously. <laughs> but you can think all those things at the same time, and I felt that so profoundly all the time, and be able to write a character who could say, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I, I am a feminist, but I'd also like a better rack. It was just a relief. Mm. Absolutely, to say that. <laughs> to say it. Uh, but that Quaker, that Quaker room, there's another story in the book as well, but that, again, Andrew is completely responsible for that Quaker hall meeting um, scene because when I first met him, 
for this role. I did a play with him 10 years ago, and I, uh, when I came up with the idea of him being in it, and I asked him for a coffee, and I hadn't seen him in ages, and I was very nervous to see him because I was going to pitch this idea, and he's so cool and lovely, and I just thought the worst thing is that he's going to go, like, this is really awkward, Phoebe, can we just pretend this never happened? Mm. And, uh, and I took him to the Soho Theatre, where we'd done our original play to try and make him, you know, feel all comfortable and disarmed. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I just said, I, want, I desperately want you to play this character. This is who he is, this is what he does, and this is what I want to talk about. And Andrew was just instantly... The moment I said it's a love story, he was like, I want to play love. I want to do a love story. Aww. And then he said, I want, to be, I want to play that, which I thought was such a beautiful thing to say. And then we were talking about uh, religion and faith. And we started walking around Soho. And he said to me, I want to come with me for a second. I want to take you somewhere. And we'd already been talking for like two hours. And he took me into the Quaker Hall. And we walked in and sat down. And there was no one else in there. But we sat down and we talked for another like hour, an hour and a half, maybe two hours about, you know, faith, religion, sex, relationships, family, like everything. Um, and then by the end of it, I mean, someone came in, so we had to be like. <laughs> <laughs> um, Imagine being the person walking and we, in. <laughs> and we were sat at the opposite end, like actually in the same kind of positions. And then we left the Quaker Hall and he turned around to me and he went, I want to do it. And I was like, Ugh! and um, and then the production didn't tell us that they'd found us the same Quaker Hall. They told <gasps> us it was somewhere else out in, um, I don't know, somewhere else. And so when we, just, we got out of our cars in the morning and we were like, yay! And it was just this magical little thing that, that, um, that he, yeah, another part of it that he, he brought to it. Hey, I mean, you can see the chemistry between you and the connection between you and you can, you can feel that there's something really kinetic going on. Um, when you set out to tell this story and ha as it developed over those two seasons, how important was loneliness and connection for you? Because it feels like it's this beating heart. And I think all the best shows seem like they're about one thing, but really they're about another. And so the top line is Fleabag when it first came out, you know, there's that initial scene where she's having sex with a guy and then, you know, do I have a massive asshole? All of that stuff, which was so fun and naughty and shocking and, you know, in the best way, scandalizing in the best way. And, uh, but actually it's, it's really about connection and, and loneliness. And I think that's why it's taken off because nothing that's just fun and scandalizing really does have that longevity and that deep love, you know, it's not, it's not gonna fill out the Royal Festival Hall, if you see what I mean. How important was that idea of trying to find connection through sex and through family for you as you were writing about it? Oh, it was everything, it was everything. Because I think uh, everyone knows what it feels like to be lonely and they know what that abyss feels like. And it's, it's a very frightening feeling. And I think watching people uh, convincing each other that they're not lonely is really heartbreaking, especially when it's family or people who are falling in love but can't admit that to each other. And I think, for me, what Fleabag is trying to do every time she makes a joke, every time she tries to tease her sister, is to connect with her. And it's just misfired. She just misfires every time. But I think that's her attempt all the time. So it's less about someone being acerbic and, like... I don't care about the world. It's constant offerings mm. of like, play with me, play with me. Tell me I'm not alone. Convince me I'm not alone. And she's up against people who are also so, you know, brittle and frightened themselves that they don't know how to do it back. And that kind of uh, misfire just, just completely breaks my heart mm. to watch. 
And so loneliness is always at the heart of it. And also that she lost her best friend, who was the person that made her feel um, understood. And that nobody did understand her after Boo had died. And that actually she, she's lost sight of who she was because she's in part responsible for it. Um, and so that's, there was just a huge, there's not just guilt, but yeah, loneliness is a huge, huge part of it. And I think it, through both seasons, I hope that's, that's palpable in all, in all the characters. In the second season begins with this as a love story. And we think, all oh, this might be a love story between Fleabag and Hot Priest. Uh, and it is, to a certain extent, but it's also a love story between Fleabag and Claire, her sister. And I think it really speaks to how we can have fallings out with our best female friends and our sisters and our mums and, and come back together. And actually, those relationships are a lot more like love affairs than we ever really let on, platonic love affairs. But they are like love affairs. If you fall out with your best friend or you go through a rocky patch where you feel disconnected, it can be much more devastating than when that happens with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Do you feel like the love story between you and Sean's character, Claire, was a beating heart of that second season? How was that to write and to act? That was the storyline I could not wait to write and even when I was thinking about coming back and doing a second season but wasn't sure if there was anything there the main thing that was going on in my head is I just want to see Sean act more <laughs> as Claire and just generally because I just love I just she just transforms into this character and I could watch Claire forever the way that Sean uh, performs mm. her I mean she's just extraordinary and so knowing also that Fleabag's very much in the center of the story in the first season and knowing that we could actually relax it and and give her more to do and give her more of a journey was a really big um was a really big incentive and then also that story just because they love each other and they drive each other mad but they love each other, and watching two people who love each other not being able to say, mm. I love you, is another kind of painful thing that I like putting audiences through. <laughs> because even when I'm writing it, I'm like, just say it. And actually the problem is, to me, the problem is that Claire is not as brave as Fleabag um, in those moments to go. Um, she's, been, she's been braver in her own way, that she's got her life back together since the mother's death, and she has created this castle around her, this kind of fort. And she said, no one comes in, no one goes out. Mm -hmm. And this is how it works. And it's usually because, it's usually just the metaphor of she's always got a coat on, you know, or like mm. talking about a coat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I just felt like that, that Fleabag's constant attempts to, to push her sister. Like in, in the first episode, like the awful thing that happens when she has that miscarriage is in some ways, in some... Uh, in, in some twisted way, the best thing that happened to those two sisters because mm. they could finally just drop everything. And the idea that you can drop, you can have years of like minor little gripes with somebody and then something like that happens and it just all falls away in an instant. Mm. And you're like, no, I'm here, I'm your foundation, I'm your sister and nothing else matters, let's go. And that's a romance that is worth telling over and over. Right, full applause break. Uh, the line that absolutely devastated me and really made me sob, and actually I couldn't even talk about it without crying for quite a long time afterwards, was when Claire... I'm going to probably just pull myself together. When Claire turns to Fleabag uh, 
when Fleabag's saying, go and, go and get this guy, the, the Scandinavian Claire. Um, and why don't you go? You know, he's gone to the airport. You know, you should, you should run to the airport for him like in a romantic comedy. And Claire says to Fleabag, you're the only person I'd run through an airport for. Oh, it just broke my heart, because it's true. It's so true that, 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 you know, I have close female friends and sisters who I would run through an airport for before I'd run through an airport for any man. Sorry, Tom. Um, he'll be fine. He doesn't want me running through an airport for him. But it, it's, there's, a, there's, there's a heart to that and an understanding to that about the frequency on which female friendships and, and, and sisterly relationships operate that is very rarely explored. And your sister wrote the very beautiful score for, the, for Fleabag. And season two is just... <sighs> Talk about how it was working with your sister on something as evocative as the music. Um, well, it's just brilliant. You get to work with your sister. But also, she really can do that. And I remember when we were talking about this series, uh, about the second, because the first series, we hardly wanted any music. And when we did, it had to be very um, specific. So the titles for the first season were just a kind of like, um, which were two pieces of music that Izzo wrote that she then layered on top of each other to make that strange sound. I didn't want it to be manipulative in any way that you couldn't read what the music was trying to tell you. And then it, there was like one or two other cues in the series. And then so in this series, we were just like, let's go to town. Um, it was amazing because what Izzo had done is she wrote all this incredible choral music on a shoestring budget, having been given references for like 100 piece orchestras and choirs. I was like, like that. Um, she was like, fuck you. And, um, but then she did, she came back, she had six singers and then a boy choir. And she wrote this incredible piece of music that we tried to fit into the first episode. And it, it felt almost right. And then, but not, it wasn't quite, quite the right fit. So we put that to the side. And then Izzo composed this other uh, incredible piece of music for the beginning. And then we realized that the piece that she had composed for episode one, that just came out of her like, whoa, fit perfectly over the scene where Fleabag and the priest um, kiss in her apartment. But to the extent that there was no editing of the music or the screen that needed to be done, it was so unbelievable that our editor, Spooky. Gary and Izzo, have a kind of like magic thing going on anyway. And he was like, let's just take this from the bin, which is a, ni is a nice thing. The bin is a nice thing in the edit. <laughs> Sounds like you put it in the bin, you put it in like the reserve. And he took that out and put it on that scene. And the scene wasn't working and it wasn't working and it wasn't working. And I was like, I don't know why it's not connecting. And then he put Izzo's piece of music over it and it fit perfectly. We never touched it again. It just went poof. Mm. And um, just this instinctive thing that uh, she manages to she manages to write from her gut and write the subtext of a character or two characters sometimes at the same time, their emotions without it feeling manipulative. Um, and I think that's such a hard thing to do. And I still feel like when I hear the music that plays over what happened in the Neil scene, I mean, she... <laughs> so I'm just like, oh. <laughs> um, but that, again, that was in the edit when that we were all sort of going, oh, God, that moment sort of... Um, Ooh. And then Izzo put these, oh. these extraordinary, like, adult singers just, like, throwing their, like, absolute hearts, vaginas, genitals at this song. Actually, the words that they're singing are actually really rude words in ancient are Greek. Are they? Yeah. What do they mean? <laughs> um, 
Oh, is that? I don't know if I should say. <laughs> She's here. Is, is that, was it there okay was one. No, the best thing is there was a woman on Twitter. Incredible. There was a woman on Twitter who said, who must be the only woman who watches Fleabag and knows ancient Greek, <gasps> when, uh, guys, oh. <laughs> has anyone else noticed that uh, that's what they're singing? But, uh, but also, the, the, uh, these are things you wouldn't necessarily um, notice to listen to, but you feel... No, but we'll look them up now. <laughs> but you'd feel is that there's, it's kind of... It's a boy choir at the, um, at the beginning of the show, and the voices mature, uh, mature as oh. the show goes on. And it's like those kind of details that just completely transform your viewing experience. But, you know, ideally you don't notice it when you're watching it, but you feel it. And I think mm. so much of this heart just came from the music. Thank you so much. The wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the South Bank Centre Books Podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.